0: Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Psalm 128. If you've been here since Mother's Day, I'm doing a short four-week series on the family. We started off on Mother's Day, and I preached about mothers who make a difference. And we looked at two women in the Bible, Jochebed, who was Moses' mother. She was a protective mother. And then Lydia, who was an instructive mother, she was the mother of Timothy. So we looked at those two mothers. The next week, we looked at child training. in A passage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. And it gives to parents two dual commands that begin to overlap. In the early stages of life, parents are to control their children. It says, bring them up in the nurture, which is our word discipline or control. So the first 12 years, particularly uh, control. And of course, that tapers down. Children are uncontrolled and they need to learn discipline from their parents. And then the second thing he says is that we're to teach them controlling them and then teaching. You can't teach a lot when they're first born, but as they grow older, we teach them more and more. Control goes down, teaching goes up. So we talked about child training. The third week, last week, I preached to you about loving parents make tough decisions. I preached about parents with teenagers. Loving parents make hard decisions, and we have to. Uh, And we talked about that for a while from different passages of Scripture. So today, I'm preaching to the men, to fathers, to dad, but men in general. I'm preaching to men today. Not everyone born a male is a man. Maybe you could say it, not everyone born a male even becomes a man. Now, by the way, I'm not talking about gender confusion. I might later on, but that's not what I'm talking about now. You can be born a male... But it takes maturity and responsibility to become a man. A man that has no maturity, or he may be a male, but he has no maturity and doesn't take on responsibility, is really not a man. It takes maturity and responsibility to become a man. You're only young once, but you can be immature forever. You really can. Some people don't grow up. They don't want to grow up. We don't want that. The Bible doesn't teach that. I read about someone that was visiting a kind of a quaint little village in Great Britain, in England, and uh, he said to an older man that was there, was a resident. He said, "Have there been any great men born here?" The man thought about it for a second and he said, "No, only babies, because because great men aren't born; they're made." Great men are made, and that's what the Bible talks about, is becoming a real man. Men are not born great, they are made great. Some babies grow to be great men, but there's probably a lot of factors involved in that, and certainly one of them is their fathers and their home. So let's talk about God's plan for the man. What is a real man? What is a real man? I'm sure you've thought about that before. What is a real man? Is a real man measured by his net worth, like Jeff Bezos, who started Amazon? He's worth $190 billion. He's the richest man in the world. He has so much money. You've heard people say he's richer than God. He's not, by the way. He's not richer than God. Jeff Bezos will pass across the scene. But if he stopped and saw a $1,000 bill on the sidewalk, it's not worth his time to pick it up. He probably would. But he's making more than that per second. So he's the richest man in the world. Is that what makes a real man? Or is it having huge muscles and a tremendous body? Probably most of you are familiar with Dwayne the Rock Johnson is it machoism machismo that makes a real man being a Hollywood legend and being bigger and tougher than everybody else is that what makes a real man I think we'd say no that isn't that's not a real man or is it calibrated by athletic prowess Tom Brady one of the greatest athletes alive one of the greatest athletes in American history Super Bowl champion more than anyone else. A a hall of famer. Is that what makes a great man? Not according to God's word. And I'm gonna side with God's word. What is a real man? Matter of fact, what is God's plan for the man? You've heard me say, if you've been here any length of time, what is success? Success is finding following and fulfilling the will of God for your life. That's success. Finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God. Outside of that, you are not a success, regardless of how big your muscles are or how much money you have or how many trophies are on the wall. That is not success. Success is finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God for your life. And we find that in the Bible. We find the will of God for men. Now, if you buy a refrigerator or you buy a smartphone or you buy a new car, you get an instruction manual with it. So you know how to operate your purchase. Men, boys, this is our owner's manual. This tells us how God wants us to operate in this life, in this world. This is our success manual. Let's look at Psalm 128, God's plan for the man. Psalm 127 and 128 are companion Psalms, they're sister Psalms about the home and the family. They're songs of ascent. You probably know what that is. That means that when the Jews were going to one of the religious festivals, the three that the men were required to at least each year, and when they were going up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is up, when they were going up to Jerusalem, they sang the songs of ascent. As they ascended to Jerusalem, they sang these songs. They memorized them. They sang them. They knew them. Their children learned them. So these are companion psalms that the Jewish nation knew very well about the home and the family. Notice with me in verse 1. Let's reread verse 1 of Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The first thing I see is a real man has a faithful walk. A real man has a faithful walk. The psalmist describes a particular kind of man who has set a pattern for his home. He's a worshiper of God. He's a lover to his wife. He's a leader to his children. That's what he's talking about in the way. He has a walk that is exemplary. In the Bible, walking is not just talking about putting one foot in front of another. It's talking about the way that you live. It's a metaphor for the way that you live. He walks, he lives in an exemplary fashion before his own family. That's what it's saying in verse 1. Men, you are God's representative in the home. You realize that. You know that. You're what the Bible sometimes calls the priest of your home. You pray for your family. You lead your family in worship. You are the priest of your home. Men, you are the representative of God in the home. Your children, your wife should see God in you. As men, we are told to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians chapter five and verse 25. Now we all understand what that is. That's a sacrificial love because Christ loved the church as bride, us as believers, so much he died for us. That's a sacrificial love. If your wife was polled today and she was asked a questionnaire about you, would she be able to say, He has a sacrificial love for me? He sacrifices himself for me. It's not all about him, he's not a narcissist, it's not his life, his hobbies, his free time. He lives for us. That's the Bible definition. Plainly said, we are to do our best to model what God is like to our families. Men, don't fall for the lie. And it is a lie. Don't fall for the lie that spirituality, Christianity, religion is for women and children. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. God calls men to lead. God calls men to lead spiritually. And the fact of the matter is, every woman here today, every woman listening to my voice would really like to have a spiritual leader for her husband. They follow spiritual leaders much easier. Don't fall for that lie. God calls men to spiritual leadership. God places a bigger responsibility on men than on women. Matter of fact, if your home is not right, you bear the primary responsibility. One of the chief characteristics of our Heavenly Father, and we're to pattern ourselves after Him, one of the chief characteristics of our Heavenly Father is faithfulness. Sadly, one of the traits of men today is unfaithfulness. Deadbeat dads, unfaithful fathers. I looked this week as I was preparing at the U.S. census that was taken in 2020. So this is current. You can see it yourself. But it tells us some alarming statistics about men and their unfaithfulness. Let me give you some examples here. 18.3 million children, that's one out of every four children. 18.3 million children live without a biological father, a stepfather, or even an adoptive father. One out of four children in America have no father figure whatsoever. 85% of the men that are in prison today this morning, 85% of them grew up in a home without a father. It's the number one predictor of men going to prison. 63% of children, teenagers, 63% of children that commit suicide come from a fatherless home. So you can see all the social ills that are connected with fathers not fulfilling their responsibility. I was reading about the divorce rate. You know what the divorce rate in America is? It's 40% right now, but it's down. It used to be 50 and slightly over 50%. But you know why? Because so many people are living together without the benefit of marriage, that they don't get divorced because they were never married. It would actually be higher if they were married. Do you know why they're not getting married? primarily it's the lack of commitment in behalf of men. They want to eat the cake, but they don't want to pay for it. They want to enjoy the benefits of cohabitation without having the responsibility of being a father and a husband. It's really a commitment problem. I looked at the the statistics in another area. Since 1920, that's 100 years, 1920, 2020. Since 1920, the divorce rate in America has gone up 1,420%. That's unfathomable. 1,420% the divorce rate has skyrocketed. If you were to chart that, it would be like a falling off a cliff. Divorce is the number one predictor of poverty for women and children. Don't believe Hollywood. You see these single moms. That may be Hollywood. They're making millions and millions a year. But divorce is the number one predictor of poverty for women and children. I feel like somebody needs to stand up and shout out, Fathers, walk in the way of the Lord. Men, become men of godly character. That's what this verse is preaching to us. That's what America needs to hear yeah, I'm preaching to the men here, but I'm really preaching beyond the men here because I know the men here. Stu Weber, in his book called Tender Warrior, said this, fathers and husbands need to learn faithfulness. Stand by your promises. Never let go no matter what. When marriage isn't fun, stay with it. When parenting is over your head, stay at it. When work is crushing your spirit, don't let it beat you. When the church is overwhelmed with pettiness, stay by it. When your children let you down, pick them up. When your wife goes through months of mood swings, live with it. When it's 4th and 14 and no time on the clock, throw another pass. Be the man, stay with it. The Bible says that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Calvary. In other words, he wasn't gonna be deterred. He wasn't gonna be dislodged from his goal of doing his father's will. He set his face like a rock. He was going to go to Calvary and to die. Nothing was going to sidestep him from the suffering. He stayed when it became very tough he stayed by the stuff. He stayed by his calling. When he could have summoned an airstrike of angels from heaven to lay low his enemies, he stayed with his stuff. He finished the job. Matter of fact, he said, it is finished. That was his last words. He stuck by it. It is finished. So we see, first of all, a real man has a faithful walk. Second, Look at verses 2 and 3. A real man has fruitful work. It says, when you eat the labor of your hands. So now he's describing working with our hands, doing work. I recognize not all of us work with our hands. But he's talking and describing work. When you eat the labor of your hands, the sleep, the Bible says in another place, the sleep of a working man is sweet. When he comes home and he's tired and he crawls in the sack, he's out. Sleep of a laboring man is sweet. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. It's satisfying. God made us to work. And we get satisfaction and fulfillment from our work, especially men, probably more than women. Women are more relational, men are more vocational. We're much more task oriented. And when we work, you shall be happy, it shall be well with you. Your wife, and then look at this picture, this analogy gives your wife shall be like a fruitful vine, like a grapevine, loaded with clusters. Your wife shall be fruitful like a vine in the very heart of your house. She's the center of the home. She loves being there. She loves being there with you and the family in the very heart of your home. And your children are like olive plants all around your table. Pictures of little olive trees all around the table. That's the picture. So the psalmist is using an agrarian metaphor, a farming metaphor to to paint the picture here using grapevines and olive trees. And he's telling us God's plan for the man is to work and to provide for his family. God's plan for the man is to work and provide for his family. This principle is found throughout the Bible. It's found way back in the earliest chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face, in the sweat of your brow, in the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. You're going to be plowing this soil. You're going to have thorns to contend with. You're going to have weeds to contend with. It's going to be laborious, but that is your plan now. You're to be a laborer. You're to be a worker. You're to provide for your family, and it is not going to come easy. Exodus chapter 20 verse 9 says, six days, by the way, it doesn't say four days, it does not say five days. And I think all of us understand the, the principle. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thine work. On the seventh day, they rested. On the seventh day, we worship in the New Testament. But six days shalt thou labor and do all your work. So God is saying to all of us as men, it's not going to be easy. Dig in and work hard. And by doing so, you'll find satisfaction. You'll provide for your family and you'll glorify God. Luther used to say, and I can't remember the German phrase, but to work is to worship God. To work honestly and earnestly is to worship God. Our work can be out of balance, but work is glorifying to God. He invented it. He told us he's pleased with it. A lot of men get into sin. They get into trouble because they're not working. They're loafing. A lot of men Maybe they inherited money. Maybe they made money. Maybe they don't want to go to work. But a lot of people, and we see it all in our culture, are getting into all kinds of trouble because they're not working. Now, back to the agrarian example that he uses. Grapevines and olive trees have one thing in common. They need to be highly cultivated or they don't produce. Grapevines and olive trees have to be cultivated. A vine can be very fruitful, but what? It needs support. It needs something to lean on, cling to. He says that's your wife. Needs support, something to lean on. Your wife can be very fruitful if she gets the nourishment and support that she needs from her husband. Olive trees, they were greatly prized in the ancient world. If you had olive trees, you were wealthy. Because olive oil was used for everything. It was used in cosmetics. It was used, of course, in cooking. It was the oil they used for all of the machinery that they had. It was used for all kinds of things. Olive trees were greatly prized in a source of wealth. And he says these olive shoots, these little olive plants that are around your table, need cultivation. Are you weeding them? Are you watering them? Are you cultivating them? is the idea. Or we would say today, these little olive plants, these children that we have, are we discipling them, controlling them? Are we instructing them? Are we demonstrating the Christian life to them? We would say. That's the modern application of Psalm 128 in verses two and three. In that vein, our society would like to convince us that there's no difference between men and women. That there's no difference between men and women. That's contrary to both the Bible and biology, by the way. I looked this morning as I was going over my notes on Facebook, Facebook lists 58 different genders. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's idiotic. There aren't 58 genders. There are two. The Bible says God created Adam and Eve, male and female created He them. All the rest of those genders are perversions, all the rest of those genders are contrary to God's word. There's two genders male and female. God created them. Satan always tries to blur the lines between the genders. The androgynous male, you know, Michael Jackson, Prince, whatever. You look at him, you hear him, you can't tell if it's a man or a woman. Satan always tries to blur the lines between the genders. And believe me, you know it, he's certainly working overtime at this today. He's working overtime at it. Boys, boys. Competing in girls' sports. That's the big thing now in high school. Boys competing in girls' sports. It's not fair, it's not right. And then there's the whole other realm of hormone therapy and sex change operations. They can go through all of that and they have a skyrocketing suicide rate even more when they were gender dysfunction and gender dysphoria they call it and confused. Then once they go through that, then they really jump off the cliff. Why? Because it doesn't change their DNA. Their DNA says you're either a male or you're a female. It doesn't change the DNA. People can cross-dress, but that doesn't change who they are and how God created them. And we have to realize as Christians, as Bible believers, as conservatives, we're swimming upstream in this woke world that we're living in. But truth is truth. The Bible doesn't change. Matter of fact, mankind doesn't change. Men have greater strength and endurance, but women have greater constitutional vitality, outliving men on an average by four years. Is a man put together right and a woman put together wrong? That's almost where we've come to. Well, one is right and one is wrong, and everybody that's there wants to be over here and there. They want to switch teams. Is man put together right and women wrong? No, of course not. Gary Smalley says, a woman, I like this. He says, well, woman is like a butterfly and a man is like a buffalo. (laughs) She is beautiful and fragile and sensitive to everything around her. If you taped a pebble to a butterfly, it wouldn't get off the ground. It could not fly. Tape a pebble to a buffalo and he doesn't even know it's there buffaloes don't smell flowers they eat them and the ones that they don't eat they trample that's a buffalo now we don't blame the butterfly and we don't blame the buffalo it's how god made them and as long as they live in their realm and their nature they're happy they're doing what they were designed to do they're being what God designed them to be. And that's true for mankind. That's true for the gender. That's true for men and women. A real man has fruitful work. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. Get used to it. Exult in it. Be all that you can be as a man. Be all that you can be as a woman. Remember Desert Storm? I can't believe it's this long ago. It took place in 1991. What's that? 30 years ago. Seemed like it was not that long ago. Remember Desert Storm? American soldiers were led by General Norman Schwarzkopf. And if you remember Schwarzkopf on the news, you respected him. I even like his name, Schwarzkopf. That's a good German name. Remember General Norman Schwarzkopf? He defeated the Iraqi army in 10 days. Back when we fought wars to win wars, and they were led by generals, he defeated the Iraqi army, drove them out of Kuwait in 10 days. General Schwarzkopf is the kind of man that you would follow into a firestorm. If he's leading, we're following. He was big as a bear, tough as nails a soldier, soldier, ready to take the battle to the front porch of his enemy. He was interviewed by Barbara Walters. Here you got a conservative military man and an outlandish liberal newscaster. Barbara Walters was interviewing him, and they got on the subject of the cost of war in human lives. And as she asked him about that question, he began to cry. On national TV. And she said to him with journalistic bluntness, General Schwarzkopf, you, you are a leader in the army. Aren't you afraid to cry? This is what he said. He said, I'm afraid of a man who can't cry. How true. Here's a war hero, man's man. He said, I'm afraid of a man who can't cry. That's that perfect blend of toughness and tenderness. Toughness and and tenderness that every home needs from their father, from their husband, from their man. By the way, who is more meek? Who is more lowly than the Lord Jesus Christ? He wove a whip with the materials that he had, and he drove the money changers, those that were taking advantage of the Jews that were coming to worship and turning the house of prayer, he says, into a house of merchandise. And he drove them, one man against an army of of Jews that wanted to hang on to their money. And he drove them out of the temple. That's toughness. But on the other hand, it says, at the tomb of Lazarus, his good friend, the shortest verse in the English Bible says, Jesus wept. He wept. And at times he would call the children to him and put them in his lap and says, suffer the little children to come to me. Toughness, tenderness. Men, may we have that balance. May we have that blend. Third, a real man has future wealth. We've seen that a real man has a faithful walk. A real man has fruitful work. A real man has future wealth. Look at verses 4 through 6. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children... Peace, shalom upon Israel. Notice, as many other translations translate it, that the man that gathers, as he is playing off the previous verses that we just read and talked about, his family is around the table, and he blesses the Lord. This man blesses the Lord. When we talk about blessing the Lord, that means praising God and praying to God. While his family is there, he's praising God, and he's praying to the Lord in behalf of his family, in behalf of his nation. And what does it go on to say? It goes on to say in the next phrase, and the Lord will bless you. He blesses the Lord. The Lord blesses. It's a reciprocal. It's a boomerang. What goes up comes down. He praises God, he blesses God, he prays to God. The children learn that, they're secure. His wife knows that, she's secure. And God blesses that family. God blesses that nation, is what it's telling us. This blessing extends beyond his family to his nation. And he, what does it say here? To Zion. Zion's one of the names for Jerusalem, but it's often a perspective of the whole nation, the nation of Zion, nation of the Jews, the capital being Jerusalem. America will never be right until our homes are right. The answer isn't going to come from the White House. The answer is going to come from the church house and from your house as we lead our families. Men need to say what Joshua said. In Joshua 24, he says, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua was an old, old grandpa when he said that. He wasn't a young man. He was an old man when he was saying that. What is real wealth? He talks about a real man has future wealth in verses four, five, and six. Is real wealth a Mercedes or a Jaguar? Nice cars, we all know that, but that's not real wealth. Is real wealth a home with five bedrooms and four baths, a pool, and a patio? Is that real wealth? Those are nice things, but that's not real wealth. No, real wealth is a family that loves and serves God. That's real wealth. You can have that kind of wealth now, he tells us, and for all eternity if your family loves Jesus. That's the kind of wealth he's talking about. That's the kind of wealth that comes to a real man. Children don't make a, a rich man poor. Children make a poor man rich. They're gathered around his table following the Lord Let me close with this verse, Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. Get the gist of what the psalmist is saying in this later, or this earlier psalm. He says, for he established, that's God, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers, that they should make these laws, these commandments, these principles, that they should make them known to their children, that It goes on to say that the generations to come might know them, even the children which would be born that are not yet there, but as your little children around your table, that someday they're going to grow up, they're going to be married, that they would teach them to their children, he's saying, who would arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do you follow that? I think it's pretty obvious. Teaching an example from fathers to children on to grandchildren. That's God's plan for the man in his home. And always will be. That's God's plan. The security of a nation is found in the sanctity of its homes. The security of a nation is found in the sanctity of his home, which is based upon the spirituality of his parents. We all know that characterized our country at one time. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 52 of them went to a church like this. 52 of them. Number of them were preachers. First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, God moved on our country. That characterized our country, not today. And it boils down to, maybe not exclusively, we would say, but it boils down to our homes, and it boils down to our fathers. Let's pray. Father, you are our heavenly Father. We pattern our life after you. We seek to follow your commands, your principles. Every one of us here today, that's a man, Lord. No, we fail. We fail in this area. We've come short. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Help us to start over. Help us to be diligent. We pray for our nation. We know that it is affected by the homes that I'm speaking to today. So on this Memorial Weekend, we remember your commandments. We remember our responsibilities. Help us, Lord. Give us your grace to be what we can be. Bless our homes. Bless our fathers, the men of the home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.